it's important to foster your talents and your interests beyond just the day-to-day -day work. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Dr. Rachel Gerson. Dr. Gerson is a board-certified radiologist with expertise in musculoskeletal radiology and women's imaging and has been in practice for more than 15 years. She is committed to supporting women and people of diverse backgrounds throughout their careers in radiology and to making radiology an inclusive place for patients and the practice of medicine. She is also a leader and consultant in health innovation and clinical implementation strategies. Dr. Gerson has served on the American College of Radiology Commission on Women and Diversity, multiple ACR committees, and is a current member of the ACR Council Steering Committee. She also serves as the chair of the Committee on Women and Diversity for the Washington State Radiolo Radiological Society. Today is the day after International Women's Day, and it's a very important time to have Dr. Gerson on the show. It'll come out a little bit after that, but uh, really excited to get into all of these topics with you, Dr. Gerson. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So, Dr. Gerson, tell me about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you find your way into radiology? I grew up in Center City, Philadelphia, in a family of lawyers, uh, so no medical people in my uh, family, and kind of took a circuitous route to medicine and to radiology. I, I was someone who was always interested in science, but I'm also a talker and a reader and went to college and, and sat in huge lecture classes you know, for chemistry and felt like, wait, where's there a chance to speak or to ask questions or to talk? <laughs> so I actually ended up getting an education uh, master's degree with a focus on science education. You know, how do we make science more accessible? I don't mean accessible in terms of the knowledge, but welcoming to people like me, women, people who uh, have uh, diverse interests and learning styles. So I got interested in that and, and interested in curriculum development and worked in education for a few years and then ultimately decided that I wanted to do the science and that medicine was a place perhaps where you could use both your person skills and talk a lot <laughs> and your science and analytical skills. So it was a little bit of a circuitous route to medicine. And then uh, within medicine, what I, I, I liked lots of things and considered several different uh, specialties. But what I liked about radiology was kind of the breadth of it. You see all the patients in the hospital. And I like being the consultant to other uh, physicians. I like the analytical, collaborative sort of puzzle aspect of uh, working together to figure out what's going on, figure out what the next steps are. So. I still think of radiology as, as kind of the hub in the center of the wheel where all the spokes come together. It's not the only area that can be like that, but it, it's really all the departments in the hospital or healthcare system come through radiology at some point. So I like that collaborative space. If I asked 100 radiologists what is their favorite thing to do, very few of them would say talk. So <laughs> it's unique. How has that skill served you well as a radiologist? Well, you know, when I was th considering going into radiology when I was in medical school, the dean for who wrote our letters and, and helped us 
select residencies, was actually a radiologist. And she um, was very personable. And I, she said, I can see you sitting there worrying that, you know, radiology is not a place for people who like to interact and talk. And she said, but those are the best radiologists, the ones who want to interact. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that, and for me, the most rewarding parts of my day are when I get to interact with a patient with other clinicians who come down, which happens less and less, I'm afraid, but um, I like solving the unusual case. And I'll give you an example, and, and this is perhaps a, a funny one, because it's, I think, something that often we don't like to do because it interrupts our efficiency and our uh, workflow, but I often cover a very small critical access hospital where we do what I like to call grab bag radiology, where it's really, you know, some ER, thoracentesis, some barium, some cancer follow-up. I mean, it's it's really just whatever the day might throw of you, very kind of old school radiology. And we have a locums medical oncologist. Uh, so it's always a different person every couple of weeks. And, and I got a call from them because a patient who I think had a, a known other cancer, but they had a CT scan that looked like there was a mass and it was hard to tell if the mass was in the colon or if it was outside the colon. And did it need a biopsy, like a percutaneous biopsy, or should it be evaluated by colonoscopy? And the study had been done without oral contrast, which gets into the colon. And the oncologist called me and said, you know, how can we answer this question? What should I do? And I said, well, they need to come back and they need to drink contrast and we need to check the study. People hardly do this anymore. But when I was in training, we did this all the time. We would look at the scout film ahead of time mm -hmm. on the CT scanner and make sure that the contrast had gotten all the way mm. to the colon. This was often for appendicitis or something before we did the scan. And if not, we'd have them wait. So I said they need to drink and we need to check before we scan them to make sure it's gotten there. Anyhow, they got scheduled to come back, and lo and behold, of course, they came back on the day that I was working, which was fortuitous, I guess. Of course, it was like, you know, 4.50 p.m. <laughs> just before I was supposed to leave. But we did the scan, and, and actually, it wasn't quite there. I mean, we did look at the scout ahead of time. I had to go in there. It wasn't quite there. We looked. I couldn't answer the question, and I said, well, let's have them walk around, drink a little more, let's scan again. And, you know, we're just going to do these slices through here. It was a level of touch on the study that we almost never do anymore, right? I was up in the room, checking the scout with the tech, going back and forth. And lo and behold, on the next round, we got it perfectly and outlined it and could see that it was in the colon. And the patient went on to a colonoscopy for their diagnosis. And I actually, like, as I reviewed the, the second set of images and saw that we'd gotten it, I actually like jumped out into the hall and sort of yelled out to the tech, we got it. It was sort of a nerdy level of excitement, but that's the kind of, I felt like I was solving the problem and a very specific problem for the oncologist. And I think, you know, a lot of times we're just reading the list as fast as we can. Um, and there's important reasons to do that for efficiency. And, but I think that sort of willingness to interact and really tailor to the patient or to the clinical question is rewarding. What a great story and glad you got to practice your talking skills in some recent cases. So what, um, you had a pretty cool experience early in your career where you got to go practice in Spain. How did you pull that off and, and what was that like? And, you know, what were some of the differences of practicing medicine in the European context? Well, this was kind of a dream that my husband and I had always had that we were going to take our children overseas and force them to learn another language. And it was just kind of like a life goal. 
And it's hard to figure out when you're going to do that, particularly in medicine. There's all sorts of licensing issues and, you know, you're in a practice, you're an owner. It's complicated to do that. I think when I was in training, um, there was Nighthawk Radiology, which was based in Australia and Switzerland that provided, you know, American radiologists providing teleradiology services overseas to take advantage of the time difference. But all of that business came back to the U.S. or, or most of it when Medicare rules changed. And you, had, you couldn't do a final read if you weren't on American soil. But I think I had had that in the back of my mind, like, oh, I'll go and work for them someday. And then that really wasn't an option. So I started looking around and we had selected, we wanted to go to a Spanish speaking country. And I just was Google searching and I found this teleradiology company called Telemedicine Clinic. It's, I think it's actually, a well, it's been bought since then, but I think it was actually a Dutch company originally, but they had offices in Barcelona. And Beautiful I thought, offices. oh. I've actually been there. Oh um, yeah, they're they also do wonderful education. Shout out to my friends over at TMC Academy. And they have these offices like on the beach and they showed me the reading room. It's like somehow they keep it dark, but you can see the the ocean. Right. Yes. I, I in fact, teach some courses for TMC Academy as well. But anyhow, I, uh, I sort of targeted them, reached out and said, because I had to work in English. I mean, I, I speak some French, but not well enough to dictate uh, <laughs> in any other language than English. And I reached out to them and sure enough, they provide radiology services to a number of different countries, Scandinavia, but one of their biggest clients is the UK. And they said, sure, we'd love to have you, but you need a British medical license and good luck with that. <laughs> And it was actually about a three to four year process of get wow. to get my British medical license. But I did in fact do that. I will never let it go. <laughs> it was a lot of paperwork. And so I'm now uh, licensed and on the specialist registry for radiology for the Graduate Medical Council, which is the, the British, you know, ACR kind of thing. And I came back to them and said, hey, I did it. I got this license. Can I still come work for you? So. There were some additional hurdles that uh, <laughs> then went on with the Spanish bureaucracy, but I did eventually move my family over there and, uh, and worked for a telemedicine clinic providing MSK uh, subspecialty reads for the UK. And what I loved about it was, first of all, I always, as someone who likes to talk, I was a little suspicious of teleradiology. Mm. You know, is it going to be too isolating for me? And ironically, I found it almost more collaborative than my small private practice where, you know, I rarely saw my partners and we were just nose to the grindstone all day. Uh, we had an active, um, at the time it was a Skype group, but, you know, mm -hmm. where people shared cases, uh, we were always reaching out to each other for opinions on things. We would get together for collaborative, you know, learning sessions for the day and also just kind of networking. And there were radiologists from all over the world who worked for them. So I actually found it to be very rewarding in that regard. There's a little less turnaround time pressure, which is not to say that, you know, people read things in a timely fashion, but a lot of the work we were doing was overflow work from the UK, outpatient. So sometimes things would be flagged for urgency, but the turnaround time was more like two days, uh, occasionally four days you know, rather than, you know, has to be read in 30 minutes. And again, we read the list, you know, the day we got it for the most part, but it allowed you a little bit of luxury to say, hey, um, I'm not sure what I think about this case. I'm going to put it out to the group and wait, you know, an hour or two to see what mm -hmm. responses I get. So that was one aspect. I would say the other aspect was that there was a range of quality of the images from indistinguishable from studies that I would see in my own practice, you know, high-end standardized images to 
mobile units that were doing, you know, outpatient studies in underserved areas with technologists with perhaps less training where we'd get kind of crazy planes of imaging or incomplete studies and you were allowed to kind of reject them back and say, you know, insufficient quality, but they would just come back to you and say, well, that's what we have, you know, <laughs> what can you tell us? And I would say that it's actually refreshing to spend a little time saying like, okay, it's not the best image in the world, but can I tell them that there's no massive rotator cuff tear? Yeah, I can probably say that, you know, maybe I'm going to miss the tiny little undersurface tear, but probably no one's going to do anything about that anyway. And I think sometimes as radiologists, especially subspecialty radiologists, we kind of get caught up in the, you know, can I exactly diagnose the tiniest finding? Sure. And you can still provide useful information even without the highest quality image. So I think that was instructive for me as well. And it was sort of refreshing to focus uh, more on what service can I provide then? Am I going to miss the tiniest? finding. Uh, so that was interesting as well. I think also just, I would say that everyone I worked with worked very hard, but somehow they also took time for lunch <laughs> on the beach, <laughs> lunch? you know, enjoyed, you know, I mean, in, in all of my years prior to that, I had never not sat at my workstation while I was eating lunch and yeah. like, dictated at the same time. I, mean, I had to enforce a rule that I wouldn't dictate while food was in my mouth because I thought I was going <laughs> to aspirate, right? And then I went to Europe and, you know, people took a break for lunch and it was fine yeah. <laughs> and came back refreshed and there was a little less burnout. Did you bring the European sensibilities back with you to the U.S. <laughs> or when you got back, was it straight to the grind and the food on your desk? Well, you know, uh, it's hard to bring that back. I think it it applies to more than just radiology, right? It's a, a societal approach to living that's a little different. That said, I will say that I have committed to myself that in my clinical work, my highest priority is that it remains interesting to me and less that I read it as fast as humanly possible or the most or I mean, I, I work hard while, while I'm at work, but I also take the time to look things up, uh, even if it's something on a topic I know. Oh, I'm going to look at this meniscal tear again and read a little bit about the latest meniscal tears. And it has reminded me that the most important thing is that I find it satisfying and interesting and that I provide good, high quality service. And I don't worry about it the rest of it as much. So I think that's something I brought home with me from Spain. I love that. And I love this story. My my wife's a radiologist and uh, we talk a lot about the dream of living abroad and, and how we would pull this off. So if, if nothing else, know that we learned a lot <laughs> and, and we'll be <laughs> talking about this at the dinner table about how we might pull something like this off. Well, if you need any <laughs> tips, you know, feel free to reach out. But I know I, I seriously, our core audience is is sort of like up and coming radiologists trying to figure out how to navigate their careers. And so um, I think this will actually provide a blueprint for many people that, that they'll find hopefully motivating and, and inspiring. But so you come back to the U.S. Where are you practicing currently? Tell us a little bit about your group. Yeah. So I came back to the U.S. and I, I had been a full-time partner in a small radiology group here in Seattle before I left. And I came back and said, what do I want my career to look like from here on out? And while I was figuring that out, I spent a little time doing uh, some locums work. I worked for a small independent imaging center that was owned by a single radiologist, which was a 
is an unusual thing to find these days and was very interesting and instructive as well. And I traveled a little bit for some locums work and I decided that I was going to get involved in the health innovation community. And part of that is I felt like, you know, when I would sit at work in my private practice initially, I was interested in the cases in front of me, but I was also constantly in my head saying, why are we doing this? Why is this study being done? Why are we doing it this way? Why is this system in place? And the fire hose of private practice radiology sometimes means that it's hard for a group, especially a smaller group, to take the time to think about those things. And often it's not in their control, it's often controlled by the hospital system. But that's the part that was sort of activating my brain every day at work. And realizing that a lot of the problems, and I would say even to this day, 15 plus, I mean, 20 years in, if you include my training, 21, that the things that frustrate me at work today are the same. They haven't evolved Mm. much at all. We haven't solved many of those problems. So I came back and thought, how can I participate in discussions about how we can improve things in healthcare and radiology for patients? And who's having those discussions? So I participated in the Radiology Leadership Institute Summit at the American College of Radiology that they hold in the fall. And it was great. And part of what was great about it is it was a small cohort, maybe 40-ish people, uh, radiologists, and then faculty, you know, talking about these very issues. You know, how are we doing this? Why are we doing it? How can we improve quality? How can we improve efficiency? And that was kind of inspiring for me. And I thought, okay, I've got to get more involved. And so I decided to get more involved in the American College of Radiology. And I also decided that I was going to get involved in the health innovation space here in Seattle. And at the same time, I have to pay the bills. So I wanted to continue my clinical work as well. So I eventually settled into uh, the job that I have now clinically, which is I work for a mid-size or small to mid-size private practice actually in Bellingham, Washington, which is north of Seattle near the Canadian border. And I work part-time for them as an employee. And I do so purposefully so that I can maintain a few days a week to do other pursuits that work towards a goal of making change in radiology and that also activate sort of other parts of my brain. So some of it is uh, selfishly to keep myself interested and some of it is uh, with a goal of really trying to make some changes in how we do things in the healthcare system. I'll get to health innovation in one second, but tell us a little bit more about your practice. So you work a few days a week. What are you specialized or are you, are you staying in MSK or have you, do you do MSK and, and women's imaging? Where, where do you? Yeah. So I, the practice I work in is, is sort of a general radiology practice, which it's about twice the size of the practice that I started in, which was only seven of us. This is maybe two to three times as big. And I think everyone has subspecialty training or most, but we all do a little bit of everything. So because I'm part-time, I tailor the things that I do. So, you know, yesterday I did a MR day and I just basically did MSK MR all day. I mean, I occasionally read some body and stuff as well, but a, a solid MR day. I'm often covering, as I mentioned earlier, a small critical access hospital, which serves a relatively rural community. And that is, as I said, just old school, all comers radiology. And then I off, I do a fair amount of women's imaging, both ultrasound, abdominal ultrasound and obstetrical ultrasound, GYN, and then also mammography. 
so it's a little bit of a mix and I yeah. like it that way. And I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this discussion comes up a lot at the ACR kind of workforce issues are, are a huge issue right now in radio topic right now in radiology and the discussion of subspecialty versus generalist. And I think the reality is, unless you're in a really, really urban setting, there's a need for general skills and a lot of radiologists in private practice use general skills all the time. Yeah, thank you for uh, getting into the details on that. I think it's really helpful for our audience to hear the different ways that people are able to structure their work. And I think what you've been able to accomplish, you know, utilizing both your subspecialty skills, but then also keeping a wide range helps with the avoidance of burnout and also helps keep it interesting. And I also think helps patient care because, you know, you've got a, a broad skilled team in your community uh, that you can tap into. So really interesting. And, and thanks for, for sharing on that. And so then the other days of the week, you, you dove in headfirst to health innovation consulting. You mentioned that the problems have been the same. So maybe what is the one problem? If you could solve the one problem, like what's the one problem that gets you going? If, if that's too hard a question, maybe two, but you said you're excited about health innovation. So what problems are you hoping to solve? Yeah, I guess uh, maybe there's two. I mean, really there's more than that, but, <laughs> but I guess I would say that for me, my interest is in the kind of systematic ways that we can use innovation tools, how they can impact the system and our workflow and how we do things at work. Of course, the hot topic in machine learning and AI is about diagnostics, right? Can the computer read the scan for you? And there's a lot of interesting things going on with that. But to me, what's more interesting is, so one of the things that happens every day, right, is you get a study that's been misordered. It's not the right study for their patient. It's not gonna answer the clinical question or they've already had that study in the ER three days before or those kinds of things. I'd like to think about what would it look like? What kind of tool could we have that would scan that order ahead of time and, and match it and say, actually, this needs to be an MRI, not a CT scan, or the study that they've ordered is not gonna answer this clinical question, something like that. So that before the patient arrives and has already drank their oral contrast and taken the day off work, we could have aligned the study appropriately. So that's one example. I would say on the other side is kind of a communications problem. And this is something that I'm interested in thinking about for the future is, you know, what does next generation uh, reporting look like? But even before that, I laugh all the time. I, I wish I'd brought a picture of it for you. Although I guess that doesn't show up on the podcast. But, oh, we, but... we can put it in the show notes. So we can put it on the, uh, the advertisement. But, you know, when I have to call a physician, um, after a study with an urgent result or a question, whatever the reason, if I have to communicate with another physician, it often takes me half an hour to get in touch with that person. And, you know, sometimes I have staff to help me, but it's still this process of, it's not instantaneous, it's complicated. And my phone list, and this has been true at pretty much every practice I've ever worked at, is a 25-year-old piece of paper with coffee stains and little scribbles <laughs> in the margin of extensions, and no one knows which area code starts that one and which prefix. And then you call the number and you get stuck in half an hour's worth of uh, COVID warnings. And if it's an emergency, call 911. <laughs> and it's amazing. <laughs> like in this day and age, when you can, you know, text someone, when you can 
chat with people instantaneously. How can it be that I'm using this scribbled on piece of paper to get in touch with people? Um, and I think that communication piece, whether it's purely operational in terms of how do you get someone on the phone or whether um, you're thinking more broadly in terms of follow-up, making sure findings are communicated, making sure appropriate follow-up is happening. We have siloed ourselves in medicine into all these separate areas and the integration of information is far behind what I think technology and the rest of the world brings to a problem. Those are big, hairy problems you're seeking to solve. On the misordered studies front, not a day goes by that my wife, she walks in the door, she throws her bag on the bench, and she just screams about some study that was ordered that didn't make any sense. She doesn't have any control because she's a fellow. And then I remind her she also wouldn't have any control if she was an attending. And so, you know, are you seeing any ideas here, any pilots that you've done, like, Tell me a little bit about the innovation process. So, you know, what are you doing? You have identified these problems. What are you doing to start bringing them into solutioning and testing and, and things like that? Yeah, um, it's a difficult question. And I'll, I'll say why for a moment. So when I when I first came back and decided I was going to get involved in the innovation space, and part of that was actually just sort of uh, waking up one day and realizing that I had been in Seattle for, you know, nine years or something. And, and all I knew were the, like, six other radiologists in my group and a few of the referring physicians, but I didn't have a really broad professional community, hadn't trained here. And radiologists and healthcare in general is a little bit isolating. And I made a concerted effort to go out and meet leaders and women leaders in a variety of fields, tech and and business and law and, and other areas, just as a way to sort of be around inspiring people who are doing different things. And through that effort, I ended up at this place called the, at the time it was called the Cambia Grove, and it was like a health innovation community slash think tank. Uh, It was sponsored by a pair, uh, Cambia Health Solutions, who I believe was out of Portland at the time. And Seattle was sort of thought of as a underperforming health innovation space. Like it has all the exciting tech um, and lots of big healthcare players. Why wasn't it more of a leader in that that, innovation space? That surprises me to hear between the tech and the amazing hospitals in the region. And I think it's changing a lot. You know, certainly Amazon has gotten involved, uh, Google and Microsoft have gotten involved in the health space and and there's a lot of biotech and pharma. Anyhow, this was an attempt to bring together uh, people in the entrepreneurial and innovation space. And they sponsored uh, talks, they sponsored panels, they provided like a WeWork space where startups could come and just sit for free and work and, and collaborate. They had networking events, all sorts of different things. And, and I would go to a lot of those events. I was often the only physician there. To be fair, a lot of them happen in the middle of the day and most physicians aren't available at those times. But their goal was to bring together people from all, all stakeholders in the healthcare space, um, payers, providers, patients, policymakers, you know, a, a wide range of thinkers and the entrepreneurial space. And I learned a lot from going there. I started my first consulting gig that I got from people I met at that space. And I served on what they called their sounding board, which people from different sectors would, would host uh, roundtable discussions where innovators and entrepreneurs could sign up just to get your perspective on things. You know, it was just 
you know, an hour of talking and sharing ideas and facilitating conversations. It was so exciting and there were lots of interesting attempts to solve problems in healthcare. But what was also instructive for me was how little a lot of the entrepreneurs know about the day-to-day -day clinical realities of healthcare, right? And so I think that is the place for me that is the most exciting is sort of bridging that gap between, hey, this is what it's like in the trenches <laughs> and healthcare, which is kind of a traditional, not disruptive sector. I mean, it is certainly in terms of, you know, therapies and, you know, obviously MRIs and, you know, that we have all these tools that are highly innovative, but it is structurally still a pretty traditional sector. And tech is kind of the opposite of that, right? I mean, you worked at Google, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a different way of approaching problems. And often the innovators are trying to solve problems that aren't necessarily the problems that clinical people are having, or that there's a lot of real challenges to clinical implementation of those. How do you get a practice to adopt one of these solutions? So I think there is a lot of movement. There's some interesting uh, startups working on follow-up machine learning tools to track follow-up or appropriate follow-up. There are interesting tools being used for uh, predictive analytics, you know, using data sets. Can we develop algorithms? There's one, for example, that is working on analyzing mammograms of people who are diagnosed with breast cancer, analyzing their mammograms in the preceding years to see if we can develop an algorithm that could identify people who are at high risk of developing breast cancer before they develop the breast cancer and maybe target them towards higher end screening, right? And I think that's really the future of radiology as an integrative diagnostic approach where we, in a personalized approach, where we're saying, okay, there's algorithms for how we approach screening and this and that, but we're gonna target people to different arms of that based on a variety of data inputs, those kinds of things. So that's one area. So I think there's lots of different problems. People are working on a variety of different things, but getting those into healthcare systems and, and into practices is a huge, uh, challenge and there's a lot of barriers around that related to uh, the capital output that people have already invested in their PAC systems and and IT systems that I think radiologists and physicians in general want to know that it works before they try it. Right? There's a saying about this and I can't remember, but you know, you sort of put it out there and then fix it on the fly. That's not really a physician's approach to trying yes. new technologies. <laughs> yes, no, it's uh, build fast and break things is, <laughs> is not the good approach in healthcare. And it it's challenging for us in tech that want to move fast. You know, it's so important that doctors hear this type of story about how, you know, there's a tech innovation meeting happening about tech and healthcare and you're the only doctor that showed up. And thank God you did, because if you didn't, I don't know exactly what they were going to be talking about. And, right. and so I think sometimes doctors, you know, coming out of training, they're just so focused on, I got to do my work, pay my loans down, and I also have to be the best doctor I can be. But there are so many and, and of these opportunities to get involved interdisciplinarily, where these companies are actually craving your input and expertise. And sometimes I think people don't realize just how much of it they have on offer. So I think it's really great that you're doing. And, you know, I'm curious as you kind of look ahead, you've done this now for how, how long? It's been about five years that I've been actively uh, engaged in these 
conversations. So then what does it turn into? Is it, you know, that you hope to latch on to maybe a company or two as an advisor? Like what role does it take over time? Yeah, that's an, an interesting question. So I have done that and have worked as a medical advisor to um, some startups and, and will likely continue to do that kind of work. And again, I think at the last startup that I did that work for, you know, there was a point after about a year of collaborating together, there was a point at which I said, I think you should come and sit in my office and see what I do, because you're talking about work lists and all of these things and you don't even know you know what that actually <laughs> looks like and it was pretty interesting they they did come and just sat behind me and took notes for three hours while i just did my normal day and they were you know eyes wide wow yes <laughs> and i was like okay you have a whole company working on solving these problems and you actually had no vision of what radiology it's worked. actually a surprisingly hard thing to do so we have 30 people in my company and many of them don't come from radiology and so one of the sure. first things we have to do is like quickly as possible is like get them to just sit and watch a radiologist <laughs> and understand right. what they do because it, until you've seen it a few times and heard the language and see the work it's uh so anyway it's, a, it's an important thing <laughs> yeah yeah um so i think i'm not sure exactly i kind of want to see where it leads me again I, i'm sort of guided by this principle of, of making sure i'm continuing to learn uh, and keeping it interesting I have, as I said, gotten more and more involved in the American College of Radiology, and I think that and other professional radiology organizations, be it RSNA or Rankin Ray or your specialty organizations, for me, I didn't realize ahead of time just how valuable participation in organizations like that can be and valuable in a variety of ways, um, both just personally for networking, getting to know people, you know, Meetings are so much more fun when you go and see people who you know and who might invite you out to dinner or whatever, or where you have a sub-meeting to attend while you're there because you're involved in a committee or something like that. Um, so just on a personal level, it's rewarding, but also, you know, I used to sit alone in my reading room and wonder who was having these conversations. And actually, there are people out there having these conversations in radiology professional organizations. So for me, that's been a really rewarding way to be involved in a lot of these discussions. And then also working either in the startup field or with some of the larger companies that are uh, tackling these. And one of the things I participated in last year, which was really fun and instructive was a fellowship sponsored through the, the Cambria Grove, which was this uh, kind of community think tank. And um, every year they had a cohort of, of sort of health innovation fellows. and. I participated one year and I think there were six of us. Again, I was the only doctor. There were some nurses, there was a pharmacologist, there were some tech people, a machine learning graduate student. You know, there were kind of a, a variety of backgrounds, but uh, we were uh, working on the HL7 technology, right? There are a lot of think tanks and kind of hackathons who are trying to develop use cases for how do we enhance data interoperability into a, a useful tool. Right. And so we were uh, interviewing of all these different groups that were working on different projects within the HL7 framework for data interoperability. And what was fun about that, again, was sort of bridging these siloed areas and getting the tech people are saying, no, we can't do that, or yes, we can. And the clinical side saying, where's the value in this to the patient ultimately you know where's the value in this to the provider um, really exciting things from nuts and bolts problems like 
how do you get the EHR to have usable data? A lab value might be input directly. It might come as a scanned PDF of a result from somewhere else. <laughs> you know, there's all different ways that a yeah. piece of information might be in the EHR. Well, how do you come for that if it's in all these different formats? So from that to clinical research questions of, you know, can you scan an EHR for phenotypic data about a patient to help identify people who might have rare genetic syndromes? I mean, there's a group working on that, right? Can you find all the words where someone says, you know, narrowly spaced eyes or all the different ways you might say that? And can you identify patients who might fall into rare genetic disease categories based on that kind of information? Hmm. To clinical research problems that are around, can you input a clinical STUT trial standard set into the EHR? So a patient who has a cancer, who's enrolled in a clinical trial for a drug, can you preset in the EHR all of their routine lab draws, all of their follow-up CT scans, all of those, even if they're done at you know, their home hospital as opposed to the main center, can you put all of that in there so it's all automated? And I was like, wow, look at all these exciting things that are happening. And how does radiology fit into that? We totally fit into that because we put a ton of information into the EHR about the patient, back to that idea of us as the hub of, of a lot of patient care. So continuing to insert myself in those uh, spaces where I'm interacting, not just with clinical people, but also uh, with the other drivers of evolution of the healthcare system is, we'll see where that takes me, but remains exciting. Awesome. Tell us about why you decided to start the Tunnel of Truth podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, I mentioned that I like to talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one of my roles at the Washington State Radiology Society is as uh, the chair of our Women in Diversity Committee. And it's a role I took over from my mentor, Gail Morgan, who's actually a guest on the podcast. Uh, she's a phenomenal uh, woman, now retired radiologist. And she had started a annual Women in Radiology mentoring event here in Seattle. And it was co-sponsored from the Washington State Radiology Society and the Women in Radiology group at the University of Washington um, and collaborated also with some of the other residency programs in the area, including Virginia Mason. And it's an annual event. It's a resident driven. They identify um, some radiologists that they'd like to have on a panel. They develop a set of questions for interviewing them. And it's a Sunday morning kind of brunch event held in person, all the community radiologists and academic radiologists are invited that, that we have information for women radiologists. And, you know, there's a panel discussion and an opportunity to network and socialize. And the first year I attended with uh, Gail Morgan, just coincidentally, after the panel, the discussion turned to just an open, frank discussion for everyone in the room. And there were probably about 40 to 45 people there with people sharing their experiences in their career. And it ranged from people who shared stories that we would think of as like, oh, it used to happen like that in the old days to shockingly current stories of sexual harassment, kind of me too moments, as well as sort of microaggressions and other obstacles uh, to their career. And I would say it was jaw dropping. I mean, I like to think of myself as, you know, 
aware in these areas. So it surprised me how surprised I was uh, to hear some of the stories that I heard. And I would say my own training, I, I was unusually, I was in a residency class of four where three of us were women, and there were a lot of women attendings at the time, an unusually large percentage of the faculty were women, um, or atypically, I would say. So it was just fascinating to hear some of these stories. And some of them were what we think of as more subtle aggressions, and some of them were really quite blatant situations. And I just found myself thinking afterwards, like, people need to know about these stories. And I had actually participated in a conversation about women in radiology at one of the ACR meetings. And there was a, it was a panel of men, you know, uh, intentionally, like, you know, how can men assist women in their careers in radiology, making radiology a more women-friendly space? And all of the people on the panel were extremely well-meaning and well-intentioned and, and committed, and also somewhat naive, I think, about, like, we would be happy to hire a woman, I don't understand, you know, just not aware of the real things that people run into. So I, I just heard these stories and thought, wow, it would be interesting to capture them. And, and in my mind, I have envisioned it as kind of like StoryCorps on NPR, you know, less than me interviewing them and more just documenting your story hmm. so that others could hear it. And again, not it wasn't meant to be accusatory, just an accounting so that we had that documented and and then COVID happened and and there was you know delay and this is an area that was new to me i'm not figuring out how to do it. it took me a while but i ended up i got a small grant from the washington state radiology society together with that and my own resources and willpower i collaborated with women-owned production company here in seattle that's interested in stories like these and they've been called large media they're they're fantastic to work with and um, just start, recorded my first three episodes. And Gail Morgan was one of those. She was willing to record her story and a few others. And after that kind of pilot group, I was able to get an ACR chapter grant to record the next few episodes. So I think we have seven total now. And they have evolved over time, which has been interesting as well. I mean, I had this original vision of just kind of recording uh, these stories. And, and again, some of them are quite personal and some of them are more uh, general about practice culture and those kinds of things they can be anonymous but the conversation has evolved to also include like how does this reflect on the care we provide right and i think i really that was another piece of it for me is how can we talk about equity and access in patient care if we can't clean up our own house right so how does thinking about the way we treat people of color women, people of uh, diverse gender backgrounds, disability, whatever it is, in thinking about that and how we set up our own professional culture, that will help us, I think, inform and address issues of equity and access for our patients. So most of the interviews try and get into that as well. And, and that's just evolved kind of on its own, but I think it's been really interesting. Well, it's important work. I listened to several of the episodes and was struck by the consistency of the stories, despite the wide range of ages of the guests, everyone from first, you know, early career to late stage career. Hope these things are moving in the right direction, but some of the early career stories would leave you feeling otherwise. And, you know, my own personal experience with this is, you know, my wife, 
you've got on the one hand the American Society of Pediatricians. I don't know if I've got that society name right, saying you need to breastfeed for two years. And then they have no maternity leave, let alone time to nurse and do the things they need to do at work. So I like the way you said it, treating the doctors the way you expect your patients to be treated. If you can't do that, you know, it's really hard to expect the same from the broader population that you serve. So thanks for doing the work. It's it's really important. And I really suggest people listen and, and really think hard about these stories and what you know role they can play. Thanks. All right. Last question for you. What advice do you have for, you know, radiologists building their careers? Maybe it's get involved in whatever area lights your fire, right? And I think that that can take a, a, a wide range. I think there are plenty of people who want to read the list and do the work, and that's important and necessary and great. But maybe you want to be involved in your community around something totally different, right? Maybe it's the environment or housing or, or your kids' soccer, whatever it is. But my own experience was that radiology can be isolating and also that it's can be repetitive and i had a moment of feeling like okay yeah i like to read cases i enjoy them i see interesting cases all the time and i also had an experience of feeling like oh am i going to do just exactly this every day alone in a room for 20 years that's a long time right i needed opportunity to continue to grow and think and tackle challenging ideas and again i think you can do that in a variety of ways you can do it with a full-time or a part-time clinical practice, either way, and you do something totally different, maybe you get totally into ballroom dancing, you know, but it's refreshing for your mind and your outlet and your other uh, skills, or you get involved in radiology. And as I, I think I spoke to this already a little bit, but for me, organized radiology turned out to be so much more valuable and interesting than I thought it was going to be. And to be honest, it's not easy to do early in your career, especially as a woman, you know, I had three young kids when I was in full-time private practice. I live on the West Coast. Half the meetings are at 4 p.m., like right in the middle of the, as I'm trying to finish up my work day. But it was pre-Zoom too, so it was like on the phone, half listening, trying to dictate. You know, it can be hard to do that. You know, I, I didn't go to an ACR meeting for many years because if I wanted to pick that week off for vacation, then I would never get the week off for my kids' spring break or something like that, you know, just the way vacation picked work. Different groups are, are different about that, but you know, it's not so easy all the time to dive into those kinds of things. But, and frankly, I've sacrificed financially a little bit to, you know, by taking a part-time position, but I consciously decided that it was important to me to have time to participate in these kinds of things. And it has been so much more rewarding than I thought it would be. And again, it doesn't have to be the ACR, could be the RSNA, could be your local specialty, the society, even just your local chapter of the American Medical Association or whatever it is, it made me feel part of a professional community that was tackling problems. So I think whatever the thing is, it's important to foster your talents and your interests beyond just the day-to-day -day work. Um, and I think it gives you longevity for the day-to-day -day work to feel like you're maximizing your interests and, and talents. Sound advice. Dr. Gerson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at theradiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests 
If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.